Today's Bible reading comes from Daniel, uh, sorry, Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 to 8, and verses 19 to 21. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was in the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward, and northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had been seen standing on the bank of the canal and he ran at him in his full wrath. I saw him close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Verses 20, uh, 19 to 21. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. In Daniel chapter 8, that we'll be considering today in our series through the whole book of Daniel, we might entitle it, The End of an Era. Now, when we first began to look through, and I began to preach through the book of Daniel, Several people asked me after the first few weeks if I was intending to preach through the whole of the book. Now, normally, that's a bit of a strange question, because if you've been with us for any length of time, you'll know that typically we preach through a book systematically beginning to end. And yet, for Daniel's book, the question made a bit more sense, because the first half of Daniel's book, as you remember, was mostly narrative, storyline, and it's quite easy to follow with the main outcome being understanding how Daniel and his friends lived in a Babylonian society that was dead set against the worship of the one true God and following his ways and how they stood up to that and even flourished in that system. But the second half of his book, as we've begun to see last, in the last few weeks, is very different. It's apocalyptic literature. It's prophecies and symbols and visions and a lot of animals that represent beasts and kingdoms. Kingdoms we've only read about in history. So how helpful is the second half of Daniel's book? I'm sure that's where the uh, 
part of the question came from if we were going to consider the whole book. And sadly, because of the, some of the challenges, or maybe just the unknown of the second half of his book, many churches fail to consider it at all. And that's a real shame, because we remember that it is our duty as Christians, and as ministers of the gospel, it's our unique duty to preach the whole counsel of God. All that God has declared in his word is for our good and his glory, and it has something beneficial for us. And in particular, Daniel chapter 7 to 12, sometimes it can be difficult to interpret, but mostly, as we've seen so far, it tells us exactly what these symbols and these beasts and animals mean. And so the interpretation is not that difficult. And there are great practical outcomes in this passage as well. In Daniel 7, you remember we were given four particular beasts, and we had to look and see what those meant, which the passage told us. And those beasts represented four kingdoms, and we had a sort of overview in chapter 7 of 500 years of history and the four kingdoms that each bled into the other. But now in chapter 8, the passage we're considering today, it contains a vision of a ram and a goat, as we just read, which gives clarity and further detail about two of those kingdoms, the middle two kingdoms of the four that we looked at last week, the kingdoms of Medo-Persia and Greece. Now, along the way, what we're going to see is this. The events Daniel sees in this vision will lead directly to the close of the old era and the beginning of the new era. The old era here is what we might think of as the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. It may be, as some people refer to it, as the time of the Jews, that is the time when God was uniquely working through the nation-state of Israel in history. That old era was coming to an end, and Daniel's visions describe what's going to happen leading up to that end. But it, it's not that they just come to an end and then there's nothing after that. Rather, that then heads into a new era. And the main payout for us, the main benefit for us in a chapter like Daniel 8 is this. The way in which we see God working in history for what for Daniel and his friends were the, was the future through these kingdoms, the way we see God working in history if, at the end of that old era can give us confidence and hope and assurance with where we are at in our current day and age in history. In Daniel chapter 8, we'll see one vision experienced by Daniel, several kingdoms explained, and two tyrants described. So one vision experienced, several kingdoms explained, and two tyrants described. Let's begin with that one vision experienced. In verses 1 and 2, he tells us when he received this vision, the third year of Belshazzar. So that's about eight years prior to that fateful feast. You remember that night that Belshazzar is deposed by the Medo-Persian Empire. So he's given this vision of what's going to happen with the Medo-Persian Empire approximately eight years before it begins to happen. He says he had this vision that appeared to him, Daniel. He's in, not in the capital city of Babylon, which is what's been happening all the way up to this point. He's in a different city, Susa, which was another capital city, about 300 kilometers east of the city of Babylon. And he's uh, right by this uh, region and this canal, which would flow into the Persian Gulf. And just like we saw in chapter 7, where all the beasts came up around the Mediterranean Sea, so too, this geographic mar marker is not just a, a nice added detail. It's important because the two kingdoms he's about to tell us about who are going to arise, and he's going to tell us what they're going to do in history, they are going to arise and be prominent around this area of the world. And this is where their starting point is going to be. So it's important that he tells us where this vision is taking place and where he sees these two animals arise from. 
But why is this new vision given? Is it just so that he can give us a little more detail about the Medo-Persian and Greek empires? Because he already told us some of the details in the previous chapter. Well, the obvious explanation here is something you wouldn't know on the face of it by just reading it in English or one of our modern languages. But it's the fact that chapters 8 to 12 of Daniel's book are all written in Hebrew. And what that tells us is that this particularly, this section of Daniel's book particularly, is written to the Jewish people as the primary audience. This is for their help, their encouragement, their assurance, because they're the ones who are going to live through this and be primarily affected by these kingdoms and these kings who come up. These chapters deal with this particular era of Jewish history and the closing of that era, and they also predict the end of it and the coming of the new era, which will begin with the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. He tells us in verses 3 and 4 about the ram, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. Two horns, one's higher than the other, he tells us. And he saw the ram charging westward, northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. So two horns on this ram, one's a little higher than the other. He'll explain that in a moment. He's a powerful beast representing a powerful world empire, the empire of Medo-Persia. But then it's the goat in verses 5 to 8, which topples the ram. I was considering, behold, a male goat came up from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. He's not speaking literally here, but he's, he's saying it was so fast, it was as if he didn't even need to touch the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which he had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with a powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him. We'll come back to that. And he struck the ram, and he broke the two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, trampled on him. There was no one who could rescue from the ram and from his power. And then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead, four smaller horns came up from the four winds of heaven. So once again, if, uh, if we were just doing a cursory look at this passage, we might say, are, are you serious? We already did four beasts in the last chapter. We got two more beasts now, and what's up with all these horns coming up and being thrown off, and then new ones coming up? This, why? Well, of course, in this vision, all of these elements represent something important. But we shouldn't think necessarily that just because a, a beast or a horn is mentioned in this chapter that it's always exactly the same as what's come before. And Daniel will get further clarification from God's messengers here in a moment. This great horn is broken and four replace it. That'll become important for what's going to happen next. But that's the vision that Daniel experienced. But now he's going to want to know what in the world does all this mean, just like we want to know what that means. And so now we're going to hear the several kingdoms explained. Beginning in verses 15 to 17, we're told this. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, I fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me, and he made me stand up. 
What's going on here? Well, notice, first of all, a very important application point for us. You may miss it at first glance, but it's vitally important. In verse 15, Daniel had seen the vision, but he still doesn't understand it. Why is that important for us to consider? Because we have this phrase in the English language, quite popular in many quarters, seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. But is it? According to the Bible, no. Seeing is not believing. Many people see a great many things. It doesn't mean they, they understand them or they even believe and follow them. In the Bible, we hear something different. We're told revelation from God, something like this vision, is given. God reveals himself. But then those who, who hear or see or experience that revelation or that vision, whatever it is, they need to see it, have their mind and hearts and ears and eyes changed so that they can receive it, so they can understand it, and then live it out. That whole package deal of God revealing himself, us seeing it, coming to understand it, and responding to it, all of that collectively in the Bible is known as believing. We have a very simplistic view of it today. And this passage gives us a great illustration of what true belief in the ways of God and the person of God are. God reveals the vision to Daniel, but someone has to explain to Daniel. Now, if ever there was a guy or man or woman, for that matter, who would be able, just by natural intellect, ability, and past experience, to understand visions and prophecies and apocalyptic instances like this, it would be Daniel. He's already had this experience. He's had visions before. He's been able to interpret them by God's help. He is well-versed in the scriptures, and yet he doesn't have the foggiest clue what is going on in this vision. And this is the case for each subsequent vision. Until God not only gives him the vision, but also allows him to understand it, reveals it more clearly, explains it to him through a messenger, Daniel is then able to receive it and respond to it appropriately. And that's a great illustration for us about true Christian belief or belief in the one true God. Many people think that they are a believer. They'll even maybe use that term sometime. I'm a Christian or I'm a believer. I'm a person of faith. And that's commendable as far as it goes. But unfortunately, usually, what that can mean is they're using those terms not according to biblical definition. Merely understanding biblical truth or understanding truth claims about God or even embracing certain truths about God, that he exists and that he is all-powerful, etc. None of that makes you a Christian. None of it makes you a follower of God. None of it means that you are actually a believer because what we need is not just God to reveal himself. We need that. We absolutely need that. But once he reveals himself, how in the world are we with our temporal existence and our very finite minds going to ever understand what he reveals unless he helps our understanding, unless he reveals to us and guides us in that understanding, unless he sends his Holy Spirit, as the scripture says, to open up our hearts and minds to receive what he has for us, then and only then can we respond appropriately. And all of that in totality is what the Bible considers belief. Just as a person who understands the concept of gravity, that does not mean that that person is the same as a Nobel Prize winning physicist. So too, a person who merely has belief in certain facts about Christianity is not the same as a person who truly knows the living God in personal relationship found it so interesting that this passage gives us a great illustration of that, as do many other passages in the scripture. But now we jump back into these several kingdoms explained. Verse 18 and 19, he says, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. 
It refers to the time of the end. He's going to use that phrase a lot, the time of the end. And as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And as for the horn that was broken in the place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. So he tells us very clearly who this is. The ram and the goat are Medo-Persia and Greece. Now, those correspond, these two animals, ram and goat, correspond to the two middle animals given in chapter 7, which was the bear and the leopard, you might remember. Or they correspond to the middle portion of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. So all of these things are connected, but he's giving us much more information for a slightly different purpose now in chapter 8, as God reveals this to him. The Medes, they became uh, independent of the Assyrian Empire, which was a great ancient empire in about 612 BC. And about 60 years later, in 550 BC, Cyrus, the, the leader of the Persians, he was both a general and a king, he was able to overcome the Mede overlord that was over the Persian Empire. And so then the Persian side became dominant. And that's, that's the two horns, one becoming more dominant than the other. And in turn, the Persian Empire became the largest empire ever to have existed up to that point. It took over uh, part of Egypt, and it took over the old Babylonian Empire, and it kept expanding. And you remember what we were told in chapter 8, verse 4. It said this odd phrase that he moves in several directions, westward and northward and southward. What is that talking about? Well, it's talking about the fact that Cyrus first moved and took Asia Minor westward, and then he took north and south Mesopotamia. Later rulers in that empire would move east and extend the empire, but all these details are very important because remember, Daniel is getting this vision before the Medo-Persian empire had come to prominence at all. And yet, foretold here is, is not only who the leader is going to be and how this is going to work and that one part of the empire is going to be stronger than the other, but it also tells us exactly their campaign strategy, westward first, then north and south, later on east and that they will become prominent and great. And that's exactly what we see happening. The goat is the Greek empire. And the first horn, as we were told, is the prominent king of Greece, the first one, Alexander the Great. Now, there were other kings of Greece before this, but he was the first king of what we think of as the ancient Greek empire, not just the tiny city-state kingdom that it was before. And it tells us in verse 5, he's going to go across the whole earth, seemingly without touching the ground, talking about the great speed with which he's going to conquer. Verse 7, it almost sounds a bit exaggerated or unrealistic. It, it, it talks about this conquest, like he's just going to run over everyone in his path. And we might think that's a little bit over the top, because of course, anytime two nations have their armies clash one against the other, Rarely does one just completely overwhelm the other, and yet that's exactly what happened. In history, Alexander went up against the Persian Babylonian remnants. He went against that empire. Alexander had 35,000 men, and he defeated an army of more than a million men. Even though that army was on their home terrain with plenty of supplies, somehow Alexander in God's providence, was able to overwhelm that much superior force and totally decimate them, beginning his campaign so that he could continue east and go farther east than any kingdom prior had ever done. He became exceedingly great, as the passage says, and in a very short time with great speed. And intriguingly, it's not just Middle Easterners or Western histories that tell the story of his greatness. 
There are even ancient Icelandic and Japanese stories of this great general and his exploits. And so his fame went far and wide, as, at least historically speaking, it should have. His ferocious attack on the Persians also gave Alexander long-awaited revenge for earlier aggressions against his people, because about 150 years before Alexander beat the Persians at the Battle of Isis in 331 BC, about 150 years before that, Xerxes, the king of Persia and Babylon, attacked the Greek city-states and won a resounding victory. The reason I bring this up is not just because it's an extra tidbit in history, but because one year later, after Xerxes uh, overcame the Greek empire and subsumed it within the Persian kingdom, one year later, Xerxes married a woman that we're very familiar with, Esther, in the Bible. But this is a, a picture of Alexander's empires. He now has overcome uh, the Persian, Medo-Persian, and now is expanding his Greek empire. It extends and extends and goes all the way to the Indus River in India, the greatest and largest empire ever up to that point. But for all of his great glory and achievement, he died at the age of 33 in the city of Babylon, ironically. He dies young. But here is a contrast that might be helpful. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died at the age of 33 as well. And yet these two men could not have been more different. Our Lord, what did he do? Well, he suffered and died to bring salvation to his enemies and to set up an eternal kingdom. Well, what did Alexander, for all of his greatness, do? He caused suffering and death in order to establish a temporary kingdom that couldn't even outlast his death by a week. It lasted a grand total of 13 years. But upon his death, the kingdom was divided into four parts among his four generals, but they lacked the original king's power, as we're told in verse 22. And as that uh, original empire is split up, it's apportioned away and some of it's lost, but the, the two primary generals that concern us for the rest of chapter 8 are Ptolemy and Seleucus, the Ptolemaic and Seleucid empires. And as you can see on there, if you're familiar with Middle Eastern geography, uh, the Ptolemaic empire is sort of North Africa, Egypt, and Seleucid empires in the Mesopotamia region, but right smack dab between them is the land of Israel. And so what would happen over the next 150 years is that Israel, the Jewish people, would be caught in the middle of these two warring generals and their prodigy. And battle after battle, war after war, Israel would be caught in the middle. And this tug of war would happen for trying for position and power by overtaking the land of Israel. And that's what Daniel is going to tell his people in this passage. Israel became the battleground. But as the Jewish people of the time saw Alexander, as they saw his empire split into four, as they saw these uh, Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires grow and all that's going to be taking place in chapter 8, what they should have been able to do is say, hey, this is familiar. We've read about this. We knew this was coming. And they could have absolute assurance that things were not out of control, that history was moving in a pre-prescribed direction by God, and that they could have confidence that God would work this out because God had told them what would happen beforehand. And so once again, we see this theme coming through that the way in which we see God working in that old era should give us pause and confidence and assurance 
as we live in our own era, this new era of history. But now let's briefly consider two tyrants that are described here. We're told that one of the four horns becomes great. In verses 9 to 12, we read this. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the glorious land, the glorious land here being the land of Israel. So this is what it's saying is out of these four uh, elements of the Greek empire, as the generals are split and they split up the land, one of those becomes prominent and there's a leader that grows up within that empire who becomes prominent and he is going to play a major part in Jewish history and world history. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. That's a, a picture of him waging war against God. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. It's saying he, he tries to dethrone God. In fact, the man that we're about to consider, who is spoken of here, gave himself the title. You want to talk about humility. He gave himself the title, God in human form. Just in case anyone was wondering who this king was, he wanted to tell everyone, I'm God in human form. So he sets himself up against God. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. That is, the regular burnt offerings and sacrifices in the Jewish temple were stopped for a time by this man, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So one of these four horns becomes, a, uh, becomes great, that is one of these four empires becomes great, towards the east, south, and the glorious land. So he starts to spread the empire, and the, in the process he wages war against the glorious land, the Jewish people, and stops the burnt offerings and sacrifices in the temple there. Now this is none other than a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. We mentioned him last week. We know this can't be Alexander, for many reasons, because first of all, Alexander never did any of these things that are described in this ongoing passage against the Jewish people. He never stopped the burnt sacrifices. He never even actually attacked Jerusalem the way he attacked almost every other place, because as the uh, traditional history goes, when he was on his campaign moving east, headed toward Jerusalem, the high priest and his entourage came out of the city to meet him, and they showed him in their scriptures, in their scrolls, that God had given them a prophecy about Alexander in the book of Daniel. And after he was told of the prophecy, he considered himself blessed and honored and refused to do anything against either the temple or against the Jewish people as a whole. And so he mostly left them to their own devices. And that was quite strange because in all of his vast empire and his empire building, he was trying to set up Greek culture and Greek religion in all the places that he went. And so the fact that he not only left them alone in the physical sense and did not attack them, but also did not try to foist upon them all the gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon is quite interesting. So we know it's not him. So who is it? Well, it's this Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes is the name or the title he gave himself, God Manifest, or God in human form. He ruled from 175 to 164 BC. To put that in perspective, 175 years before Jesus was born, approximately, this man came to the throne. He, too, only ruled a short period of time, about the same amount of time as Alexander did. And yet, in that time, he did great evil. Antiochus in 167 BC, we even know the date, June 5th, 
167 BC, he stopped the sacrifices on, uh, in Jerusalem on the Jewish Temple Mount. He stopped the sacrifices, and he tried to thoroughly Hellenize the Jewish people. Now, that term Hellenize sounds odd. It has nothing to do with heaven and hell. It's an ancient classical term, which means uh, the, the Greek empire, what they sought to do as it expanded and even as it was split into these four parts, what all of them did over the course of time, and then the Romans continued the process, was to Hellenize all the people who came under their charge. To Hellenize means to make them Greek in essence, to cause them to adopt Greek ways, Greek language, Greek thinking, Greek philosophy, Greek science, Greek culture, Greek math, Greek artistry. And so everything was going to be thoroughly Hellenized or become Greek. And that's what he seeks to do with the, Jew, the Jewish people and with Jerusalem in particular. And so he stops the sacrifices. The way he stops them is uh, by, first of all, outlawing the, the uh, worship of the one true God and anyone who's found worshiping the one true God will be killed. He then slaughters a pig in the Holy of Holies on the altar and then sprinkles pig broth, which of course is an unclean animal, all around the temple precinct before setting up a statue of the god Zeus. Additionally, he outlawed circumcision, the, the sign of the Jewish covenant, and any mother who was found to have allowed her baby son to have been circumcised would have that child hung around her neck and mother and child would be pushed off a cliff to their death. He killed thousands of Jewish people and committed many atrocities. If we had time and if we had the stomach for it, we could go through all the details, but this was a horribly evil individual. And this became known to the Jewish people as the abomination of desolation. This is repeated, this phrase is repeated in Daniel 11, but it's repeated elsewhere, not always referring to what Antiochus did, but it's repeated in 2 Thessalonians and Matthew 24 and 25 in the book of Revelation. The, the idea is an abomination is something that desecrates what is holy and causes great destruction. And certainly he committed that act of desecration, but in these other passages, it points forward to another figure, a second tyrant who will one day arise, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness we read about in Second Thessalonians, who will one day come and his evil will not be limited to just one geographic area, it will be global. And that individual will also do something similar, but on a grander scale, will cause an abomination of desolation. The natural question that God's people would have been asking in the land of Israel as this is taking place, one of many questions, no doubt, was how long? How long is this going to happen? How long is God going to allow something like this? And verses 13 and 14 tell us the precise answer. It says, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgression that make desolate? And the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. How long? 2,300 evenings and mornings. That's approximately, if, if, if each of those just counts as a day, that's approximately uh, six years and three months. There's a little question whether it's saying 2,300 days or if it's saying 1,150 evenings coupled with 1,150 mornings. Does that make sense? Because it says the evening and morning thing. So is it 2,300 days or 1,150 days? 
evening and morning combined. We're not 100% sure, but what we do know is that the temple sacrifices ceased on June 5th, 167 BC, and within just a very short time period, well within 2,300 days, they began again after the Jewish people revolted, something that Antiochus never anticipated they would do. So just as God predicted, or as the angel told Daniel to expect, 2,300 days later, and God allowed the sacrifices to continue. This tyrant does many other evil things. He fills up transgressions. He commits horrible acts of sinfulness and rebellion against the one true God. He shakes his fist in the face of God, but we're told in the passage, he will be broken, but not by human hands. We might have expected for someone such as he, that maybe one of his rivals, like Judas Maccabeus, who was one who led the Jewish revolt against this individual and his kingdom, we might suggest he was killed in battle, but no, he actually died of natural causes, sort of all of a sudden like what Daniel, I think, would have referred to as divine causes, not by human hand. God cut him short once his transgression was full. And that leads to a great, by the word great, I don't mean exciting, I mean somber and very important lesson. God allows sin for a time. He allows transgressions in each of our lives for a time, but there is an end point. We don't know when that is. He has determined it. Our duty is not to try to figure out what the end point is or how long God is going to allow sin to happen in our life, in another person's life, or in the world around us. Our duty is to look within our own hearts through the mirror of God's word and to repent now before it's too late. Because judgment is coming, and God, as we saw in the last chapter, keeps count. He keeps a record, and he will bring everything right. But Antiochus is not the only evil in this passage represented. As we go on, we'll see very clearly what he did was also an illustration or a prototype of great evil that would come. In biblical prophecy, there's a term that's uh, very helpful here. It's called prophetic telescoping. I have a quick picture for you that might be of help. But imagine that you and I are in the Blue Mountains, and we are walking through the bush, hiking through there, and we see off in the distance one of the mountain peaks. Now, from our vantage point, because we're a long distance away, we think it's just one peak. But as we get closer, what we might find out is that there's a foothill with a valley between and another peak and another peak behind that, two or three back to back. But because of the distance, we thought it was all one. It just kind of looked like one big blob to us. But as you get closer, you realize they're separate. And that's the illustration of prophetic telescoping. In the Bible, when we're given prophecies, not all the time, but many times, the way the prophecies work is from the vantage point of the original prophet or the one given the revelation. They see it, and it, it, they kind of mesh it all together as they're writing it out, because they see it as one big blob, one big mountain. And yet, as time goes on and as God reveals more detail, what we find out is oftentimes there's a, what's called a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. There's something that's coming in the near future from the perspective of the prophet given the revelation. There's something near in the future that will fulfill this, but it also points beyond itself to something what we might call more ultimate or a more ultimate fulfillment. Sometimes this is referred to as the already, not yet, or the near or far fulfillment. And so that's what's happening in this passage and many other passages in Daniel. We see both a near fulfillment, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, who would happen in literal history not too long after Daniel's time. And all that's said about him would take place. 
but the evil he would perpetrate would point beyond itself to another tyrant who would come, whose evil and sin and rebellion against the one true God would be on a global scale, the Antichrist. And that's why you'll see in Matthew 24, 25, in 2 Thessalonians, in Revelation, they will constantly be using phrases from Daniel's book. Why? What they're saying is, they're, they're not saying there was no fulfillment back then, but they're saying that fulfillment proves that there's also something else that we're waiting for. And as God reveals more and more over time, we see that come into play. And so Antiochus was not the end of this great evil against the Jewish people. He was just one of many prototypes, the most significant prototype perhaps, but one of many who would come until the ultimate Antichrist would come, who would try to obliterate the Jewish people. What can we learn from all this? Well, many lessons we've already seen, but let me just give one more. We should learn as Christians to recognize God-given signs in history. Now, what I don't mean by that is to run around reading every newspaper possible and clicking on every link and trying to figure it all out and putting it into charts and, and getting all worried and worked up about it. That's not what I mean. To recognize God-given signs in history means to know what God has told you in his word to understand his word, to understand his promises, to understand what he's told you is coming and will come. Centuries after Daniel, there would be those righteous followers of God who would see Alexander and the Ptolemaic and Seleucid empires playing out. They would see Antiochus coming and all of his great evil. And if they had read Daniel, which they should have as Jewish people, they would have said, oh, yep, I know exactly what's happening here. God told us what to expect. He told us that history is moving in a pre-prescribed direction. He is super ordaining it. And all of this is happening for a purpose. God is still in control. My job is to trust in God and stand firm no matter what happens. And that's what we should do in our own day. As we see things playing out and as we look forward to some of the prophecies, prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. And as we await the end of our era just as they were awaiting the end of their era that was told them by God. The Messiah, Jesus, when he was born, brought in this new era, sometimes called the New Testament era, the time of the Gentiles. He brought that in, and he, the Antichrist will come at the end of this era, and Christ will return. That's what we're waiting for. That's the next element on the timeline of human history for which we long. But what can we do in the meantime? All these signs and these promises should help us as human beings to not be discouraged or overly discouraged as we see horrible things around us. This is what Jesus told us to expect. And since he told us to expect it, we can also have firm confidence that he knows what's going on. None of it's outside of his control. He is allowing transgression and sin for a time only up to a certain point. He will bring judgment. And in the meantime, we have to get busy. We have to get busy telling other people so that we can warn them to flee from the judgment that's coming so that we can introduce them to Christ. The events Daniel sees in this vision lead directly to the end of that old era, and that would then foster in the beginning of the new era. What, what era, uh, pardon me, that new era is the one that we're living in, the time of the Gentiles, the New Testament era. That's us. And he gives us further details about that era as we go on. But the payoff is this, as we've seen several times, the way in which we see God working in that old era and what we saw him doing and how he gave all these prophecies, all these details, and they were fulfilled down to the very letter, to the smallest detail. All of that should give us great confidence and absolute 
enduring, utter assurance that the God we follow is still in charge. He's still in control. History is going somewhere. And that should cause us all the more to live for his eternal kingdom instead of living for the temporary kingdoms of this world. Let's pray. Father God, we acknowledge that you alone know the end from the beginning, and we are and ought to be properly in awe of the fact that you can reveal these things to us in a way that we can understand. Although we don't have all the details we might like, we certainly have more than enough to prove that you are the only God, all-powerful and all-knowing. May we trust you. I pray for any individual here who does not yet have a saving knowledge of you and a personal relationship with you. They may believe certain facts about you, but I pray that they would actually become a follower of yours. I pray that they would do so today so that they can have that unwavering assurance that these Old Testament saints were able to have as they saw your unfolding plan being enacted before them in real time. May we have great confidence as Christians and great encouragement despite all the trials and the frustrations and the evil around us knowing that you set a date known only to you when you will return. The man of lawlessness will be done away with. Evil will be brought to justice. And we look forward to that eternal kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth you will create. May we prepare now for that reality in the future. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.